God, your word says, uh, let the word of Christ dwell richly uh, in you. you. You want the words of Jesus to dwell richly in us, Lord, which, which means you want us to understand them um, and trust them, believe them, obey them, walk in them. Uh, so, Lord, I pray this morning as we do, we dive into your word. Um, we come to your word, Lord, that you would, your spirit would, would help it to do what we've been asking in other songs, Lord, this morning, to uh, tune our hearts, to sing your grace, and, uh, and to trust you more confidently and, and walk in obedience more joyfully. Uh, Lord, we need help with this, Father. That's why we're here again. Uh, we ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, folks. I'm Kenny, one of our elders here. Apparently, uh, no one knew that the, this morning we were going to, uh, Andy and Katina were going to pay for lunch for anyone who sat in the front row, but you're off the hook. So nobody's going to cash in on that this week, but never know. Maybe in future weeks, this front row could be, uh, have a little bit of money in it. So I'll just move a little closer like that so I feel in reach with all of you. Um, this is going to be a lame segue, but last week was Super Bowl Sunday. I was a little disappointed. Not because uh, of who won. I was actually uh, pulling for the Broncos. But commercials uh, this last year at the Super Bowl generally tanked. Anyone else agree? Just, usually that's what I look forward to the Super Bowl is, is clever commercials. And man, this year it was like the theme was stink. They are just terrible commercials. Anyway, that was, so that, I said that was a lousy segue because uh, at the beginning I wanted to talk about it. A commercial that I don't think stinks. It actually makes me laugh. Um, Geico has a series of commercials. They weren't in the Super Bowl. Um, but it's called the uh, It's What You Do commercial campaign. They have a whole bunch of commercials, and that's the tagline. I don't know if you've seen some of them. The, uh, my favorite ones are uh, this one. I don't know if you've seen it. The guy on the, on the right is sort of a Jack Bauer, uh, James Bondish sort of character. And the, the commercial starts, and he's running up you know, the scaffolding to, of a skyscraper being chased by you know, guys in suits with guns, bad guys. And he gets to the top, to the helicopter pad, and a helicopter flies up over the edge with more bad guys with guns. So he's trapped between running bad guys and helicopter bad Bad guys, and all of a sudden his cell phone rings and he picks it up, and it's his mom sitting in her day room, flipping through, you know, Martha Stewart or something, and going on and on about how, oh, the squirrels are back in the attic, and uh, your dad refuses to call an exterminator because this time it's personal, and, and he goes, Mom, can I call you back? And the, the voice, the announcer says, uh, If you're a mom, you call at the worst possible time. It's what you do. <laughs> It's not what my mom does. This is probably the service we record here at Fullerton, and she always listens, so mom, you're the exception to this rule. But if you're a mom, you know, you call at an opportune time. That's just what you do as a mom. The other one that's my favorite, because I have young kids and I've been uh, subjected to copious amounts of this character over here, uh, the commercial kind of goes, you see these guys and they're all frostbitten and they've had this long arduous journey traveling to the North Pole and they are just about to plant their flag in the North Pole and all of a sudden you hear, bienvenidos, welcome to the North Pole and Boots the Monkey says, what took you so long? And it says, if you're Dora the Explorer, you explore. That's what you do. <laughs> okay, so why? Let's take that off the screen no, you know, so you're not looking at Dora. Why? Well, a couple of weeks ago, as I was in this in our passage in 1 Peter, as, as you see, turn there real quick so you can see what I'm talking about. 1 Peter 1.13. Our passage begins with the word therefore. 
And so it's a turn in the letter for the first 12 letters. Peter has been um, piling up descriptions of our identity in Christ, um, explaining to these Christians um, what happened when they came and trusted Christ. What happened then? Um, what did they uh, begin to enjoy then? What became, uh, began to be true of them then? And just piles on descriptions of who you are in Christ as a Christian. And then in verse 13, he says, therefore, and he begins to get to some exhortation. And it's sort of like Peter is saying, here is who you are. And in light of who you are, there are some things that you, you do. You just do. It's part of who you are in your identity. So I want us to stop for a second and remember what is our identity that Peter wants us to have in mind clearly before we get to the therefore. He said a few things. He said, first of all, uh, if, when you trusted Christ, you were born again. You were born again. God... Um, brought about a transformation in, in you. Um, the, the New Testament also puts it like this. Your old self died and a new self was created. John in 1 John says that God's seed now abides in you. You have God's Holy Spirit dwelling in you. You are the temple of God. He dwells in you now. He said, you're elect exiles. You're chosen and precious to God. Um, but as we're going to see in this letter, um, but the kingdom of this world is not yet the kingdom of our Lord and of Christ. And so to live in this world as God's people um, will feel like we are not home yet. We are exiles. We are sojourners and aliens. We're waiting until the day when God makes all things new. As God's children, he, Peter has said, you have an inheritance you are heirs with Christ and you have something yet to come that's glorious, it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's being kept for you. He's also said, God has not left you alone in this. As you became Christians, he didn't, God does not step back now and say, all right, you take it from here. But by God's power, we are being guarded, verse 5 says, for this salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God is actively involved um, in helping us Trust him and grow in him. You've been sprinkled with his blood, he said, which is a picture of two things. One, it's a picture that, that you are forgiven completely. You are covered with the shed blood of Jesus in your place who was innocent like a lamb, as our passage is going to show, without spot or blemish who took your place. But it's also an image not just of forgiveness. It's also an image that you are consecrated now as God's people to be ministers on his behalf, right? That was the, the image back in, uh, in Moses' day when the, the sacrifice would be made to atone for the sins of the people and the very priests who were offering it. The priests would be sprinkled with this blood showing that God is symbolizing that they were now actually in God's sight considered holy and could actually usher other people into God's presence. And so all these things, Peter's piling up saying, you are a redeemed, born again, pilgrim child of God. He's just heaping up identity language. And then he says, therefore, in light of who you are, here is, here is what you do. Now, he doesn't want us to understand kind of like these commercials that if you just are that, you automatically, effortlessly, naturally, without thought or effort or anything will just be this because that's not our experience in the Christian life, is it? It's not mine. 
These things we're going to see right here do not happen effortlessly, but Peter does want us to understand that they do happen naturally in the sense that this is fruit that's born out of this, this transformation that God has worked in us. It's not alien to us, but these things Peter's commanding are actually things that now God has put desires in our hearts to do and to walk in, and they are core to who we are in Christ, and he wants us to, to get the connection. So hopefully whenever you see these Geico commercials now, it'll stop and make you think again, I am a born again, redeemed child of God. And some of these things, therefore, are, are what I do. This is what I'm called to do. So three commands in our passage. We're going to read from 113 to 21. Um, let me read it and then I'll, I'll give you those, my paraphrase of these three commands and then we'll work through. So 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that'll be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. So three commands, one's in 13, one's in 14 through 16, and then one's in 17. The first one is this. Um, if you are a redeemed child of God, uh, you fix your hope fully on the finish line. That ought to mark the Christian life that the Christian life is one that is uh, eyes forward, hope, future, fully resting in the grace that's coming to us when Jesus comes back. Your hope is fixed. Number two is going to be this, that you conform your character and your conduct to your Father, your Heavenly Father. That, that, that That's part of what, what comes along with this new birth is then you grow up in it and your character internally, what you love and hate conforms to what God loves and hate hates. And that ends up being expressed in your conduct in the way you actually live and treat other people and choices that you make and things you resist. It, it's reflected so you conform in character to your father. And number three is that you maintain a healthy fear of God as father. Yes, he's your father, but that does not uh, exclude still reverent, holy fear that your father is the judge of all mankind, the holy one who feels indignation towards sin and hates sin intensely. Your, that is your father. We're not to forget that. So let's take each of these in turn. Number one, you keep your hope fixed fully on the finish line. Verse 13. Preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope 
fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what is the finish line? Well, it's when Jesus is revealed, when Jesus returns bodily, visibly, like he said he would, one day, just as the way he went out in the ascension, he will come back and every eye will see him. When Jesus comes back, he is bringing grace to his people that we haven't tasted yet. I think he's, he's talking about a grace that is still future that we haven't fully experienced. So stop for a minute and think about that. As Christians, there's all sorts of grace that when you trust Christ and God's spirit comes to dwell in you, we're standing in it right now. We experience all kinds of grace, the comfort of having perfect forgiveness of sins, complete atonement, right? Paul says the record of your sin that stood against you was canceled. It was gone, nailed to the cross Christ through Christ's hands, right? He died for your sin. So living right now with the confident assurance and peace that God is not angry toward me for my sin, that he has satisfied all that anger in Jesus. This is grace that we already know, right? And there's other things that flow from then, that new peace that we have with God. We have access to God to pray, Right? God's throne now of grace for us is something we can approach confidently because our Father sits on that throne. And Hebrews says that we can ask for help and mercy in time of need because, and he wants us to and he responds to our prayer. This is grace that we already know. We have his spirit in us and his spirit helps us in innumerable ways. Even right now what we're doing, his spirit is helping us think about and understand clearly the truth of scripture and brings conviction to sin where needed, and brings comfort and encouragement where that's needed. And the Spirit is actively helping us, helps us pray, even when we don't know how to put words to that. This is grace that we already know. But here, I'm struck that Peter says, I want you to set your hope fully on grace that's coming when Jesus returns. There's grace still ahead. One of the most stunning descriptions of this grace that I know of in the New Testament is Ephesians 2.7. I love this little verse, this verse. Sometimes I think it actually gets glossed over because the six verses that come before it are amazing as well, right? Paul says, you were dead in your sins. You were just walking, following the course of this world. You were children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, made you alive together with Christ. And he raised you up and seated you with Christ. So all that should get our attention. But verse seven then, Paul says, what is God's end game in all this? Why? What ultimately does God want to do for you that requires his son dying, you being raised from deadness to life and being seated with Christ? Listen to this verse seven. He did all that so that in the coming ages, these are eternal ages, future, in the coming ages, he, God, might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus. That's one of those sentences that just demands chewing on and thinking about and letting the, the, the weight of that land on your heart. Just think about this. God is, God is saying here, or Paul is saying for God, that God's future plan is for eternity to show you how immeasurably gracious he is toward you through Christ by showing kindness to you in, in experiential, tangible ways. Imagine God has a desktop calendar. He doesn't have a literal one. He's, he's spirit. But imagine God has a desktop calendar, you know, with all the squares and the months and the years, and it goes out into eternity, into the future. 
And somewhere on that calendar, there is an actual square that corresponds with a day on our calendar. And in that square, it says, Jesus returns. God knows it. It's set. It's going to happen. And it's going to happen on our calendar. It's actually going to take place. And then if you imagine that calendar in all the squares after that day, the same thing is written. Ephesians 2, 7. What do we do today? God says, I'm going to show the immeasurable riches of my grace in kindness toward my people. What are we going to do the next day? Immeasurable riches of my grace in kindness shown to you in Christ Jesus, so, so not just a receiving kindness from God, but a kind of kindness that's even sweeter because it's in Christ Jesus' name who died in my place even though I didn't deserve it. It's a, it's, that's, I think, the kind of grace that the angels long to look into that they've never experienced, that we actually do. Receiving kindness, though undeserving, right? And it's, it's God's plan to show us the immeasurable riches of it in, uh, forever in the coming ages. Um, imagine this, Bill Gates... Um, I'm pretty sure is the richest uh, single uh, single richest person in the world. Billions and billions of dollars of net worth. What if Bill Gates called you and said, I've decided that I want to show you the immeasurable riches of my worth, my bank account, by spending it all on you. I don't just want you to know that I'm the richest person. I want you to know how rich I am by being on the receiving end. I'm going to spend it all on you. That's a different kind of knowledge, isn't it? You're thinking, please, <laughs> waiting by the phone. That would be wonderful. But he probably has so much money that he could actually do that throughout every day of your life until you're, you're dead. And every day would just be filled with riches, right? And God has said to us so much more than this, that he's going to show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. So there'll be a new heavens and new earth, this world that's broken and subject to futility and decay and sickness and cancer, and we're broken in it because of our sin, and so we're unsafe toward others, like Chris Mitchell would have said, did say to us here, um, and, and we're broken, and it's, and it's going to be fixed. The world's going to be fixed. We are going to have resurrection bodies and minds, physical bodies that don't wear out, not like me now at almost 45, and Brian Regan has a joke about you get to a certain age, and something starts hurting, and you just go, well, I guess that's just going to hurt forever. <laughs> it's like, it's just not going to go backwards, and we're going to have resurrection bodies that don't wear out, that don't get sick, um, that can fully enjoy the, uh, the environment that we are now living in with God forever, and minds that don't get fe- more and more feeble and frail and have senior moments and forget things that I just did yesterday, and, and minds that can retain information and knowledge and grow in knowledge of God for day to day throughout, cre- uh, throughout eternity. Or even I was thinking just seeing glory. As beautiful as this earth is that we live in, I imagine the new earth is going to be infinitely more glorious, right? Beautiful. I, whatever the metaphor in Revelation where it says there will be no need of sun or moon because the, the glory of the Lord will be the lamp, will illuminate this. Somehow, visibly, we're going to be able to see God's glory in a way that's different than, than we do now, in a way that's visible and glorious and, and, and awe, it makes us uh, awestruck. Suffering over, pain over, sadness. And so we will always be with the Lord. This made me think of uh, the last chronicle of Narnia, the last battle. I don't know if it, 
you've read those. If you haven't, put that on your, write it down in your bulletin. This is on the top of your to-do list. Read the Chronicles of Narnia. Shame on you for never having read them. No, just kidding. <laughs> they're so good. They're not just for kids. They're for, really for adults. Uh, but the last battle is the last book. And in the end of it, the main characters are being ushered into the equivalent of the new heavens and new earth. Um, they, they, they're leaving Narnia where they've been and had all their adventures. And Aslan, the Christ character, is actually leading them into glory. This new Narnia, this like the old Narnia, but it's, it's different and more glorious and, and more real. And, and listen to what C.S. Lewis, the author, says to the reader as the book comes to its end. He writes this. He says, the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful, I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. In other words, last battle, done. And we can most truly say they all lived happily ever after. But for them... It was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world, all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. He's trying to stir something in us by writing that way, trying to help make concrete something that can maybe seem so ethereal and heavenly and I just don't know what it's going to be like. He's trying to get you to, to taste something future glory um, that's better than anything you've ever known. And, and, and that's the same thing Peter is saying here. He's saying... When Jesus returns, he is ushering in a whole other level of grace and kindness from God than we've even known to date. And he says, set your hope fully on that. Ground your confidence. Have that be so in focus mentally from day to day in your life that it transforms the way you live and it reorders priorities and it motivates you to follow God as his pilgrim people. When it comes to the hope you ground your life on, Peter is actually saying, don't diversify. That's wise financial counsel, especially if you're young. Don't just take all your money and put it in one stock or one bond because if it tanks, then you're out, right? So he's saying, spread it out. Put a little on this and a little on this. Diversify. And Peter is saying the opposite here as far as the hope that ground, you ground your life on that motivates your life. He says, don't diversify it. Put it all in one place. The hope that's coming to you, the grace that's coming to you in Jesus. Put it all there. I have another visual. Two sermons in a row, vis visual illustrations. But these two stools, I want to represent two hopes. First of all, Let's say this is the grace that's coming when Jesus comes back. All that that we just described, that just we're longing for. That's this. Peter says, I want you to set your hope here. But our problem, our tendency constantly is to add all kinds of other stools out here and diversify our hope. So here's hope. It's kind of like a board. And this is what we tend to do. And this, let, let's just make this stool real. You, you need to fill in the blank in your own head with this. We have all kinds of other stools like this. Other things that we rest some of our hope on. Other things that in our life, maybe these are the things that you're the most stressed out about and you, you're, you fret over and you're worried and you're anxious. That's probably one of these other stools right here. Something that you feel like, if I don't have that thing or if I can't experience that thing, um, I can't be happy. I can't be content. This could be the approval and acceptance of others in your school and in your, in your work or just in your life or in your family, the way you are a, um, you know, a son or a daughter and the acceptance of your parents and their approval or the, the acceptance of, of your, your peers and your work. This could be a spouse or children 
or grandchildren. It could be freedom from sickness and just health and physical strength, all kinds of stuff. You get the picture. Here's the hope set before us, and here's all these other things. And what we want to do is we want to say, yeah, that's good, but also I really want some, I want to rest my hope on some of this. You think it's going to break? It's not. It's a very strong board. But uh, that's, this is kind of how we, we tend to live. And that Peter's exhorting us not to do, to say, no, 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 don't set your hope on anything other than this. I want you to put the full weight of your hope here, that as long as I have this, I'm okay. Doesn't mean we can't enjoy these things. Doesn't mean we can't want any of these things. But actually, I think if we do this, we're going to be able to enjoy and, and uh, all of these other things even more purely because none of those are a guarantee, right? God doesn't guarantee us any one of those things over here. It's good gifts, um, but it's not a guarantee. Here's something he has guaranteed us that we'll absolutely not fail. That's what Peter's saying. Set your hope fully on that. You know, I was struck, I thought, uh, one of the reasons we picked, decided to do First and Second Peter coming out of the Gospel of Mark is just to say, we want to listen to this Peter who was transformed from the Peter that we read about in the Gospel of Mark. And, and we, I don't want to forget that this is the same Peter uh, that spent years of ministry with Jesus. And so I was thinking, wh where did Peter learn to talk like this or think like this? And I think one of those places is Luke 12. Turn over there with me for a minute. Jesus talked like this. Jesus taught the disciples like this. In Luke 12, he's specifically teaching his disciples. So Peter was there. And he was urging them. Maybe he, Jesus had even seen in them these tendencies. And he was, he was pastoring them here. But he's urging them not to be all caught up and consumed and, and, and worried and anxious about day-to-day -day things. Things over here. These other things. And, he, and he's encouraging them away from that. And here's how he does it. Verse 22. He said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or your body, what you'll put on. Life is more than food. The body's more than clothing. He doesn't deny the, the importance of those things, but he says it's much more than that. Consider the ravens. They neither sow or reap, and yet, they, uh, and yet God feeds them. How much more value are you to God than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your span of life? If then you are not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil or spin. But I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory wasn't arrayed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? And do not seek what you're to eat and what you're to drink. I think being, being caught up and consumed with this and focused on this or be worried. He says, all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your father knows that you need them. So he's not dismissive. Your father knows what you need. Some of these are things you need, he says. But then he says, instead, you seek his kingdom. And these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
So, so now sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that doesn't fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Do you see what he's saying? It's, it's what Peter's talking about. He's saying, live in such a way that's ordered by your hope is set there, future. Seek his kingdom, his righteousness. These things will be added to you. And, and, and it's the way Peter talks, money bags that don't grow old, treasure that doesn't fail, that's imperishable inheritance, right? Unfading, kept for you inheritance. Treasure that's in heaven that won't wear out or disappear, poof. So in light of all these wonderful promises, future, then how should we live? Jesus says, verse 35, stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so they might open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Do you see this language of setting your hope fully on that grace when he comes back? Make, make your life such that every day is living like Maranatha. May we never, that song that we just sang, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Listen to what happens when the master comes home. Verse 37, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say, he'll dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he'll come and serve them. Even if he comes in the second or third watch and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. His disciples at that point must have thought, wait, what? That seems upside down. When the master comes back, he's going to dress himself for service, tell his servants, hey, take a load off, sit down. I'm going to serve you. You're going to feast. That's what Jesus says. That's where Peter learned to talk like this. That's what Jesus is going to do when he comes back. He's bringing grace for us when he comes back. And how are we called to live? Fixed fully on the day he returns, like servants who are, can't wait for the day. Is today going to be the day? Is today going to be the day when Jesus, my master, returns? And that's what Peter's saying. Turn back here. That's how he says, practically speaking, we set our hope on that day, is he says, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. These are two helpful images that should characterize the Christian life. Uh, preparing your mind for action literally means gird the loins of your mind up, which sounds kind of gross. But here's a picture. Let me, to add to the grossness, here's a picture of what that would be, right? So back in Jesus' day, men typically wore these nice long flowing robes. They were very nice when you were just walking around the marketplace or doing business. But if you had to lift something heavy or run away from a bad guy or fight a battle, uh, you would probably trip and fall and get stabbed, right? So the way you were readied for action would be you'd hoist all those things up, show your nice hairy Middle Eastern legs there, and you'd pull all that to the front and bunch it up like a wedgie, I guess, and pull it around and tuck it then or tie it either into your belt or tie it in a knot so it's all up out of the way of your knee so you're ready, you're unencumbered, nothing's going to trip you up. And then you can run after people with a scimitar like that, right? <laughs> it's Peter saying, do that with your mind. Put your mind into that position, <laughs> which is kind of weird. All right, let's take that image off the screen. But so in, literally, though, how do we do that? What does he mean? He says, I think he's saying, declutter your mind of all the things that crowd in and obscure that singular focus right? All the things that distract and, and, and just and press in uh, with, with all these different things. Eat, what am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? And when is this going to come? And, and oh my gosh, what about retirement? And where am I going to live? And he says, declutter these things. Prepare your mind for action. Stay focused. And it goes hand in hand with being sober-minded, he says, right? Being sober-minded is the opposite of being drunk or intoxicated. 
I'm sure, I'm sure Peter literally would have said, yes, don't be drunk, but he means way more than just don't get drunk, uh, literally drunk. I think he means keep your mind um, free of being numbed or dr- lulled into drowsiness or anesthetized by all kinds of even good things that we can be uh, occupied, right, with our time. Busyness just tends to... Uh, Uh, numb us to spiritual things, doesn't it? Even busyness with good things, you can suddenly realize, I don't think think God or Jesus or his calling upon my life or what what I'm going to enjoy one day came to my mind once today or all week. We just be so busy that we're just numb to these things. And Peter's saying, you can't do that. If you want to set your hope fully, you've got to actually take control of your mind and use it as a muscle um, to to fuel your hope, to fix it on, on what you need to fix it on question for you to, to think about is what numbs your mind to God? What numbs your mind um, to this hope in the future? What crowds it out and causes you to forget it and, live, and just then now live for right now? Whatever that thing is, even if it's good things, it's worth setting aside or having moderation. And I, the one that I was just convicted with last week, I realized this numbs my mind. It's just the sheer volume of entertainment consumption that I can be prone to, right? I mean, we live in an age now where there's a term called binge watching. That's actually a new phrase, right? And I'm sure it's because with streaming media like Hulu and Netflix and all this, you can actually watch entire seasons and multiple seasons of a show all at one sitting, just gorging on it. And there are all these shows that leave you with a cliffhanger at the end so that you have to just watch one more and one more. And at this stage of my life, with three young kids, my daily finish line can sometimes just come down to getting the oldest kid in bed, getting my cozy pants on, sitting on the couch, and just getting the, you know, the Apple TV remote out. And I can even watch fine things. It's not the content of it. It's just the sheer volume of it. I, I'll notice that Throughout the day, my mind is chewing on where it left off in this series and what's going to happen next, and that's consuming the thoughts of my mind. And Peter's saying, whatever those things are that numb and clutter and trip you up, do what you can to to keep a clear mind that that doesn't uh, lose sight of our hope. So I don't know what that is for you. The, the, The point is, don't write down, we all have to stop watching Netflix. I don't know what that is for you, but think about and identify what numbs your mind. If you're one of God's redeemed people, you fix your hope fully on the finish line. I knew I was going to spend the most time on that first one. That's how that usually goes with me. Um, So number two, something you also do is you conform your character and your conduct to your heavenly father. Let me read it again. Verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So be holy. I want us to think of that in terms of be conformed in your character. He says, don't conform to these other desires that were part of your former ignorance. But the implication, I think, in saying be holy is be conformed to someone else, your heavenly father. Be like him. Three things I, I want us to see about this command to be holy. Number one is that it's grounded in our new birth and the reality that, that a decisive change has come about in our, in our soul through uh, birth, and it is that we have become children of God. Look at verse 14 again. It's so important not to skip over. As obedient children, don't be conformed and be holy. Back in verse 3, he says it's because we've been born again to a living hope. 
We're called to be holy because we are now, in fact, children of God. Our God is holy. He is holy. And his seed now abides in us. So therefore, holiness is going to grow in us. Yes, by degrees and by process, and it's not going to look identical in each of our lives. But nevertheless, it's going to happen first and foremost because a transformation has happened and God's seed now abides in us and it is going to have an influence on us and we are going to increasingly reflect the character and resemble our Heavenly Father. I think it's what Peter's pointing us to when he says, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's a grounding word, right? Our holiness is because first and foremost, God is holy. And the connection between those is, well, God has now come to to dwell in us by his spirit. So therefore, we shall be holy for he is holy. So that's one. It's grounded in our new birth. That's where it comes from. Second, holy conduct doesn't happen effortlessly. Doesn't happen effortlessly. Verse uh, 14 has a negative side to this. The flip side of this command is not just be holy, but also involves don't be conformed to passions of your former ignorance. In other words, former ignorance points to before this transformation has taken place, there was a blindness to the truth, a blindness to to what's right and wrong in a sense, a, a blindness to the sinfulness of sin, a blindness to the holiness of God and the beauty of his holiness. And rebirth, uh, what comes along with it is new eyes. Like that quote that Jordan read is that God is like our eye doctor. And, and now we actually have new eyes to see what formerly we didn't. We were in ignorance and we had desires that flowed out of that. And so now we are to not be conformed to those passions of our former ignorance. It implies or it assumes what we all know by experience as Christians is that sin's pull on us doesn't just disappear when you trusted Christ. We feel it every day. I feel it every day. Hopefully, the longer that we're in the Lord, the more we'll be aware of it, which is one of the sort of paradoxes of the Christian life is actually the longer that you grow in the Lord, you might actually feel worse about your sin than you did early on. And that's good. You're more aware of what that is. But anger and pride and envy and greed, and selfishness, and competition, and rivalry with others, and self-absorption, and laziness, and apathy. All of these passions of our former ignorance keep pulling on us. And Peter says, he, he says, fight it. Take action. Exert the effort of your will against these desires. As you feel those desires and have eyes to see that they're wrong, and they're leading to, de- to death, and emptiness, and sin, resist it. Don't be conformed. Put up a fight. And some of you I know right now internally get a little uneasy when we talk like this about effort. Uh Uh-oh, this doesn't sound like grace. Uh, But no, this sounds like works. This sounds like earning it. But it doesn't have to. Listen to this. Dallas Willard, who just died a few years ago, he was a a philosophy professor at USC, a Christian and an author, and um, uh, wrote some great books like Divine Conspiracy. Um, Listen to this, what he writes. And he he actually said this on a number of occasions. I think for him, this was something that, that he, it was sort of one of his axes to grind. And he said, it's crucial to realize grace is not opposed to effort. Grace and effort actually can coexist, he's saying. Grace is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. It's a motivation, right? Effort is, an a- is action. Without effort, we'd be nowhere. When you read the New Testament, you see how astonishingly energetic it is. You see the difference between effort and earning. 
earning is an attitude in the heart that says, if I do X, then I will, uh, God will be obligated to do Y and Z. And that's wrong. But effort is always involved in growing in the Christian life. Grace should lead to energetic effort. Eyes that see the sinfulness of sin now ought to lead to energy to run away from that sin because now I see what it is, right? It's like when they take one of those black lights into a cheap motel room and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, what, what, is, what went down in this hotel room, right? Once you have eyes to see that, it should lead to energy. To, I'm getting out of there, right? And eyes to see the glory and the beauty and the holiness of God's character ought to lead to an energetic seeking to, to be conformed to that, which leads me to the third thing I want to say about be holy, and that is that God's holiness isn't just the ground for ours. It's actually also the pattern for ours. In other words, look at verse um, 15 again. We're not just to be holy for God is holy, but Peter also says as he's holy. That word as is different, a different reason. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your, all your conduct. In other words, be holy in the manner that your heavenly father is. What does your heavenly father look like? Imitate him. Paul said the same thing, Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God as obedient children. Look at, be, uh, become intimately uh, uh, aware of your heavenly father and what he's like. How do we do that? Through the scriptures and particularly in looking at Christ, who's the exact representation of God, right? Know your father well in his character. Look at it and then imitate him. Talk like him. Act like him. Hate what he hates. Love what he loves. Look at your heavenly father and, and how he treats people. And Jesus, his son, how he treats people. Treat people like that. We get this kind of thing all the time in the New Testament. So like Ephesians 4, 32, be kind to one another and forgive, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. He's saying, look at your heavenly father, how kind and tenderhearted and slow to anger and forbearing he is with sinners. Be like that. Or like Luke 6, 36, be merciful, even as your heavenly father is merciful. Look at the mercy of Jesus in the gospels and imitate him. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Imitation might sound to you like fake, hypocritical. That's not real. Real Christian life, authentic Christian life can involve imitation, but not according to Peter, not according to Paul. There's an appropriate kind of imitation that comes when your dad is worth imitating, Right? Ron Allshafer was sitting right where you're sitting, Jan, in the first service. And as we were talking about this, I was just struck because as I've gotten to know Ron and Joyce Allshafer, I've gotten to know Ron is a godly man. He's not a perfect man. He's very aware of how he falls short, which is part of his godliness, actually. And, I've, I, and I had a chance the first year and a half they were there that their daughter Catherine has been here. Now she's married and moved up north. But I was able to see in Catherine's life ways that her character resembles her dad's godly character. And it wasn't by accident. It's not just, you know, family traits that she, he, they genetically passed on. But it was so obvious to me that there are ways that she has admired uh, Ron's love of God's word and faithfulness to know it and memorize it or commitment to prayer. And those are part of Catherine's life. She's like her father because she sees it and it's worth imitating and she does. But the cool thing is, is that he's like that because he's imitating his heavenly father. There's nothing wrong with imitation. Let's be imitators. 
In fact, that's actually the way Paul says this process happens. Don't turn there, but listen to this one verse. 2 Corinthians 3.18 describes sort of the nuts and bolts of how does this process of us growing in family resemblance happen? He says, this is how it happens. We all, with unveiled face, eyes that can now see properly, see God properly, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, or sometimes one fraction of a degree of glory to another fraction of a degree. That's how I feel sometimes. But you see what happens? Beholding the glory of the Lord, I'm transformed into the image. That's imitation language. If you're one of God's redeemed people, this, this is what we do. We love our Father, we look to our Father, and we imitate our Father, and we grow to be like our Father. Not to earn anything back from Him, He's our Father, right? He's put the robe and the ring back on our hands, not because of, of us, but simply responding to our humble repentance and because of His great mercy. All right, so that's number two, committed to holiness, growing in conformity to God's character. Uh, and number three, mark of the, the redeemed, born-again believer is that you maintain a healthy fear of your heavenly Father. I use the word maintain here because verse 17, he says, if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear, we'll come back to that, throughout the time of your exile, Throughout your whole life as you're sojourning, waiting for that day, Jesus comes back for the whole course of it, conduct yourselves with fear. So maintain a healthy fear throughout the course of your life, this, this pilgrim life. That might seem weird to us because Peter has just piled up a whole bunch of reasons why we should not fear God. We shouldn't fear his anger. We shouldn't fear his judgment, right? We've been born again. We've been sprinkled with blood. And, and right after this, he says, you've been ransomed, not with just money like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot. And so why, when Peter's going to great lengths to assure us of things that, that remind us God is not angry toward us in our sin anymore. He's our loving father out for our good in all things and coming with grace one day with Jesus. So then what room is there for fear? Well, Peter grounds it in two things. Look what he says before and after the command. First, he says, don't forget who your father is. Second, he says, don't forget what your sin cost. He says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one de one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. So first, this, this fear comes from not forgetting that, yes, he's your father, but the day that you came to become a child of God, he didn't stop being the holy one who hates sin intensely and who will judge all mankind without favoritism. He didn't stop being that God. He didn't suddenly turn into old softy God that doesn't care about sin. He can't do that. So your father is nevertheless still holy judge. So don't forget that, he says. And then the second thing he says right after, conduct yourselves with fear, knowing you were ransomed with precious blood of Christ, his son who stepped down from heaven, humbled himself and became a man and suffered in your place. You were ransomed at that great cost. And Peter is saying, he thinks those two things, the fatherhood of God and the, and the, the, the salvation that we have through Jesus, the ransom of Jesus, ought to both fuel an ongoing fear of the Lord. Here's what helps me think about, I think, what Peter's getting after, is when I try to imagine, in light of all that he's said here, what would the opposite be of conduct yourselves with fear throughout your life? 
If, rather than a life that's marked by conducting yourselves with a, a fear that God, my heavenly father, is still judge and, and the cost of my sin was the death of his holy one, what would the opposite of that look like? What words come to mind? Presumption. Presumption, right. What else? Flippancy. Flippancy. Mary Struckmeyer said the exact same word last service. It's a perfect word. Flippant, right? That means to take something important lightly, right? Psh, no big deal to just blow it off, a cavalier attitude, right? An attitude towards sin and the holiness of God. Uh, that's, I think, sort of like the attitude Paul imagines someone might think wrongly about the grace of God. Oh, if we're not under law but under grace, are we to sin? He says, no way. Oh, but we're under grace. And he says, no, no, that doesn't mean suddenly you don't care about sin. In fact, you should care all the more about sin. You're not ignorant about it anymore. So an attitude that says, God's my father, and yet doesn't care about sin or holiness, I think Peter wants you to be alarmed if that is how you feel. If sin is, is a light thing to you, oh, it's all paid for. So I don't need to worry about it. You know, temptation, fall, just ask forgiveness, and sort of cheap grace mentality. I think Peter would say, hold on, not so fast. Be afraid of having that sort of an attitude and what that might say about the state of your heart. You know, I, I, was, I was struck after preaching last Sunday at La Mirada, this week, Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Stop and think about that. When you first come to Christ, it's because you suddenly come to have a proper fear of God and understanding of sin, right? That's just the beginning of wisdom, right? It doesn't go away the next day. No, fear of the Lord is where it starts and you maintain that. It's part of what drives us to continue to not run back to sin when it pulls and to run toward God. Absence of that fear in your heart should alarm you. Hebrews 12, 14 says, there is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. John Calvin would put it like this. Can you put that up there? It is faith alone that justifies. Yes, but the faith that justifies is not alone. That's not just clever playing with words there. What he's saying is, yes, we are justified by faith in the finished work of Christ and, and yielding ourselves to him. But that faith is never alone. That faith is never absence of evidence of a transformation and a new heart. And the scary thing, Peter, I think would be saying is if you would claim saving faith, but the evidence speaks to the contrary, then he would say that is reason to, to fear. I think the day when Jesus or when God comes as judge, it's like this. Ed Clowney writes a great commentary on a first Peter. And he says this. He says, on the day God stands as judge, the faithfulness of the Lord's people, our obedience will be displayed. Not as the basis of our acceptance, God saying, okay, all right, you did enough, okay, uh, then enter into your glory. No, it's not the basis, but it is to show the reality of their faith in their Savior. Peter right now is preemptively saying, so conduct yourselves with fear and trembling. Take sin seriously. You know, if, if it doesn't, that should be an alarm to you going off. I think the best way I read this being articulated, I want, I want to wrap up with, with for this point because we're out of time, but... John Piper trying to put in, into paraphrase, conduct yourselves with fear. What is this kind of fear? And he says this. He says, Christian, fear treating the blood of Jesus and the fatherhood of God is trash. 
living in a way that, that, uh, that just presumes and takes that for granted and treats it like trash. She says, if cozying up with the sins, I like that phrase, cozying up with, being okay with, sins for which the father sent his son to die is tempting to you, run with your, all your might in the other direction, lest you find yourself in bed with the very same things that slaughtered the son of God. Fear treating the ransom and the blood and the fatherhood of God as trash. I think that's what Peter's getting after. May we never do that. So, God's redeemed people. Let's maintain a healthy fear. Help one another. Not forget who our Father is and conform our character. Help spur one another on toward this, like Hebrews says. And let's keep our, our hope fixed fully on what's coming. I should have brought my rope back out. But guys, let's not live for the little end of the rope right here like I talked about a couple of weeks ago, but for all this to come. Let me pray. Uh, Lord, this is what we do. Not, not easily, um, not perfectly, Lord, but I thank you for every evidence of your Spirit's work in, in our lives here. We want to look to that and find the assurance you want us to have knowing that something has changed and, and we are your children. God, I pray that you would help us, though, be children um, who resemble you in a way that does draw others and draw draws the world um, to you through the gospel message. God, I pray uh, for this hope to to grab hold of our lives in ways that, that le leads us to live radically eternally minded lives that stores up treasure in the right place. Um, God, uh, and I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who resist, that we exert our effort for good reason uh, against sin and, and toward uh, living and imitating you, our Heavenly Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.